Welcome to the Law of Startups podcast. I'm Mike Schneider. And I'm Joe Wallen. Thank you very much for being with us. Today, we're lucky to have in our studio four spectacular founders, uh, Daniela Taylor from WeConnect, uh, Gilad, Elad, Elad Berenstein from Utrip, Asim Badcha from Sosito, and Michelle Feaster from Usermind. Welcome, everybody. So, Elon, why don't you start us up? So, start us up and tell us what we're going to talk about this morning. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having us, Joe. Um, when I was with you a couple months ago, we started a conversation about fundraising in Seattle. And one of the thoughts I had is that so much of the press that we read and so many of the podcasts we listen to focus on startups that are down in the valley. And not just startups in the valley, but also ones that have insane growth from the very beginning, which, of course, is not the story for the majority of startups out there. So what I wanted to do is bring together some friends um, and have a conversation about fundraising in Seattle, about starting a startup in Seattle, and just some of the hard work that it takes to get it off the ground when you're not the next Snapchat, or at least the current Snapchat. Maybe we have the next Snapchat sitting next to us here. Um, what I was thinking we'd do is um, each of us take two or three minutes, quickly tell you about ourselves, about our companies, how much money we raised, um, and then we'll jump into it. That sounds wonderful. Awesome. So I'll kick us off and I'll pass it over to my left from there. Um, so my name is Gilad. I'm the founder of Utrip. We use artificial intelligence to help people discover destinations and plan trips. And we license that software to hotels, airlines, cruise lines, et cetera. We've raised about $4.5 million for a mix of investors here in Seattle, in Silicon Valley, in New York City, and other places around the country. Awesome. Thanks, Gilad. This is uh, Michelle Feaster. I'm the founder and CEO of UserMind, um, and we're a B2B startup, so we're building a customer engagement hub for Fortune 2000 companies. And really what that does is help enterprise companies take their disconnected teams and systems, call centers, websites, apps, and generate connected customer experiences, despite the fact that those teams and systems don't typically talk together. Um, in the course of our four years, we've raised $22.1 million. Um, our Series A was led by Andreessen Horowitz, and our B was done by Menlo Ventures. Fantastic. Asim Badsha here, founder and CEO of Sosito. Uh, first time entrepreneur. I've been doing startups basically since I uh, graduated from college back in 2010. And uh, Sosito's mission is essentially to help companies be more relevant to their customers. The way that we do that is by gathering buying signals from social media and providing that to B2B marketers so they know who to target and we help them create really cool one to one personalized journeys. Uh, we raised about $2.5 million from great Seattle-area investors um, led by Divergent, uh, Vulcan, and then Techstars as well. Hi, everybody. I'm Daniela Tudor, co-founder and CEO of WeConnect Recovery. Uh, we've built a platform that helps those in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction stay in long-term recovery and also built a data dashboard that we sell B2B to hospital systems, insurance companies, and treatment centers to garner outcomes data. Um, and I'm very happy to be here and uh, really excited for this. Oh, and I've raised about $4.5 million. Awesome. Well, Joe's letting me take over a little bit, so I'm going to ask the first question to my friend Asim here. And basically, the first question is, when you started fundraising, what type of investment options do you consider? What type of investors did you consider? And what type of investors did you actually end up with? Um, and were you able to choose those investors, or was it chosen for you in some fashion? Maybe you can fill us in a little bit. Yeah, definitely. So uh, a little bit of all of the above. Um, you know, like I said, I'm a first time founder and we're in the B2B space. We sell to B2B marketers. Uh, it's something that not a lot of VCs know. Um, and it's not kind of a general concept that, you know, typically people just understand broadly. So for me, fundraising has always been a bit of a long road. It's been about developing relationships over time and constantly uh, just developing relationships so people can really understand me, the team and the business. Uh, and that's kind of how we've, we've gone about fundraising. So for us, it's been kind of typical. We joined a, uh, an accelerator. We joined the Microsoft Accelerator powered by Techstars. After that, we did the typical kind of early few hundred K angel round on a convertible note. We re-upped that convertible note, then went to a seed round with our, uh, our venture capitalist investors like Divergent and Techstars, and, uh, and then re-upped on that seed round as well. So it's kind of been that typical journey, just lots of conversations and relationship building over time. Awesome. And Daniela, was your experience similar? My experience was a little bit different. Um, we did consider many avenues. Um, so to be completely transparent, I came up with this idea because I'm a person in long-term recovery. And when I got out of treatment and the genesis of this idea came about, I was actually uh, quite a bit of money in debt. And so we took money very early on. Um, our first investor, she came in on a convertible note. 
And uh, really, she was through my network of doing some other podcasts and some other um, some other types of things uh, in my previous sort of startup. And after that, uh, it was really through um, building relationships with that next round of angel investors, and they made introductions to other folks. And so it just grew from creating those relationships with the current angel investors. And in this last round, we did take um, some institutionalized money from a fund. Um, however, the person that's part of that fund, he also put in some of his own personal cash as well. So we've tried to stick with big angel investors for as long as possible for a variety of reasons, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit later. And in terms of location, um, for me, geography is not a factor. We have money from six different states outside of Seattle, and then also from Victoria and Vancouver, BC as well. Awesome. Michelle? Well, I think I'm the outlier in the group uh, since I only have VC money. Um, you know, so when my co-founder and I were thinking about starting a company, we did a ton of interviews and, and just took our own money and built a prototype. Um, and my mentors and advisors had said, hey, you know, you, you should go and try and build a syndicate round. Um, I had a lot of VC relationships. So my last uh, job was at a startup called Aptio here in Seattle. You know, I'd been working with that board for years. So I had a bunch of VCs who knew me and whom I could go pitch. Um, and, you know, I had a typical kind of competitive situation where I started raising a syndicate round, you know, thinking I'm going to raise, I don't know, 1.5 or $2 million on a convertible note. Um, and one of the VCs that I was pitching came back and preempted the round with a full con convertible note. And so I went back to kind of all the other VCs and said, you know, I, I don't want to take this. I kind of want to um, potentially work with you guys. Uh, specifically, I have a relationship with other folks at Andreessen Horowitz that's very, very long term. Um, and so that kind of accelerated me into a Series A, literally on a prototype. Um, and so I ended up having a competitive round. We ended up raising $7.6 million. Um, but we'll, we'll talk about kind of dynamics, you know, why I went with the investors I went with, how I thought about, you know, angel money versus VC money. But I never really even considered angel money. I thought even, even you know, raising 1.5 to 2, I was just going to take it from one uh, VC so that I would optimize for having a board member who is invested. Um, and, uh, and, and we got... We had uh, SV Angel in as well, but that was really just trying to get Ron Conway in to help us. It was not really out of a desire to have angels around. Well, so when you, Michelle, when you were raising the convertible note round, did you, or were thinking about raising the convertible note round, um, do you have like a the evaluation cap in that in that note that kind of went away and became irrelevant when you decided to raise a much bigger round, or how did that work, or with, maybe it was an uncapped note? I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, you know. Uh, you know, it, it was a cap note. I mean, that's pretty standard. Um, but I, I didn't go in focused on valuation. I, I don't know about everybody else's experience, but, um, you know, I, I, I had nothing. I mean, I had a prototype. So you guys might have already had product when you were raising. Um, so I just went to my peers and said, hey, like, if I was winging it, you know, what, what is that? And, and, you know, kind of that was somewhere on, you know, an 8 to a 15 pre. Uh, and so I wasn't really optimizing either for valuation or dilution. I was mostly focused on getting the right board member and based on my experience at Aptio, raising every dollar I could. Um, and so I ended up with a great valuation mostly because I had a competitive round and I was able to negotiate up both the dollars and the pre. Um, but but I, I didn't walk in with, with a goal in mind other than like I read Bat Bradfeld's book. I'm sure everybody else did. And I was like, I'm going to give away 20 to 25% of my company, maybe slightly more because I have nothing. Uh, and, and so like I, I, I didn't walk in with a pre that I had to have. I, and I haven't done that with any round. I don't know about anybody else. Um, but it's much more been about who, how committed are they? What's the person going to bring to my board? Are they going to like be all in when things go sideways and when like I have a bad quarter? Um, so that it's been much more about composition, loyalty, um, you know, their level of investment to the idea and the team, and then you know how much money I can get. So, so pre has never been the big focus for me. I don't, I don't know other people. Yeah, absolutely. And I can say, um, you know, from my experience, when I started Utrip, I was not only a first-time CEO, but I was 22 years old. Um, you know, so no VC was Half cutting me. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> not many people are running to cut me multi-million dollar checks at that point. Um, and we started by raising about $20,000 from the founders um, to help build the smallest little prototype we could. And from there, had to raise a few small rounds of angel funding um, in order to get the prototype into a beta experience we can actually put in front of customers. 
um, and to build from beta into a complete product. And ultimately, we took a fair amount of dilution along the way. But I think the pro of that is we got to take our time learning the lessons we needed to learn um, in order to grow. I think if we raised millions of dollars when we first started this, um, probably would not have been a successful company as it took us a few years to really learn the lessons of how does a travel industry operate and what are the things that really matter to the big players in our industry. So one question I get asked all the time, which I'm going to pass on to the rest of the folks here with us today, is did I pitch angel groups and was that experience worthwhile? And the other question I love I love getting and asking other entrepreneurs is, is VC money always better? If you're able to get it, is VC money always better or are there alternatives um, – funding sources that are maybe just as good. And I'll pass it over to my right to begin. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, you know, we we did a little bit of pitching to angel groups in the early days. And my personal experience was that it wasn't the most fruitful. Uh, it's a lot of time that you have to take. It's It's kind of decision by committee, which can be tough. And there's a lot of just gates that you have to get through. So it's a very formal process, which at an early stage, I think uh, can just be tough, right? When you're really raising based on relationships and uh, and really spending a lot of time with individuals to get them to understand your idea, your vision, but then also help them provide you feedback. It just is a little bit harder, I think, in the, in the angel group environment. So for us, uh, we've always looked at angel groups as more of a follow-on type of mechanic. Once we have a lead, um, maybe that's a place where we go and get some follow-on cash because it's just easier for a group to make a decision when some something's already kind of been validated and laid out. Um, the second question was around, is VCs always better than uh, than angels? And I think, you know, <clears throat> it's some, some of this is kind of a two-part question, right? One part is, how much do you need the money? Uh, because... <clears throat> Excuse me. If you have choices, um, then you don't necessarily need that right off the bat, right? You can go to multiple different sources. You can get competitive with it. But if you need money right now, then you have to look at all your options, right? You can't hold out for just VC. So you look at banks. You look at people that are doing, uh, you know, syndicates, angel list, crowdfunding. There's lots of different sources out there. I think VC allows you to go big quickly, um, but again, it's it's just the the place that you're in, right? Can you do you have a storyline that you can go big quickly? Do you have the relationships that allow you to go big quickly? And I think that's where VC comes into play. Otherwise, look at all the options that you have. It's uh, it's your best 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 interest. Daniela here. So for me, angel groups were a great crash course in terms of how to get confident in terms of pitching, that personal internal growth you need to have, um, just quickly, really quickly, rapid learning of what's important to investors, how investors operate and think. Um, but ultimately for us, especially since we're a very nuanced uh, product um, for a population that is quite controversial, it's important for us that we raise money from the right people. Um, it's not just about the money. It's about do they care about social impact, healthcare, and or have they been some way impacted by uh, the, the topic of our product, which is for folks in recovery. So that was really important to us when we were raising money. But angel groups were a wonderful crash course in uh, getting me the personal growth and the confidence and the learning of how people operate early on. Um, and for us, VCs are important. We're just starting down that path are important now that we've gone through just like uh, you mentioned. Um, they're, they're great right now at this point in our company to start down that path because now we're, we've sort of made the mistakes we needed to make, the learnings, the lessons that we needed to learn. And now it's just about real execution and growing. Uh, but before that, I think it would have been detrimental to take VC money for uh, from our perspective. Yeah. And I can add a bit of our experience here at Utrip. Um, we've taken money from a number of angel groups uh, and overall had very positive success. The two things that I think I learned from that experience is one, when pitching an angel group, the message has to be really crisp. The room is full of people with different experiences, different professions, different life lessons they've learned. Um, and the more kind of open the pitch is, the more different directions you can be taken and sometimes find yourself pretty far away from the core business model you have or getting questions that are not really relevant to the core of your business. So I find that message has to be really crisp. The second is exactly what Asim said a minute ago, which is once you already have a lead and some terms established, going to an angel group can be quite good. Going there without a lead is often going to be a challenging experience as most angels don't want to lead around and especially around that's going to be in the million dollar plus um, from investment capital um, has been our, our experience. And I'll pass this to Michelle to ask the final part of the question, which is, is VC money always better if you can get it? <laughs> uh, so I think it depends on the VC. 
Yeah. Uh, from my point of view, you know, a good VC is always better in that they are very, in, you know, generally a good V, what is a good VC, right? They're invested in you for the long term. They believe in a big idea. They're going to exercise pro rata rights and they're going to give you a clean term sheet. That's to me a good VC. A good VC writes a check, gives you a good board member, invests time in your company, um, always invests in follow on rounds, right? Never. If they, if they don't, that's a huge issue. So I think if you can get that, then to me, VC money makes sense. But if you feel like you have a tier two VC who's going to give you prohibitive terms like ratchets um, or, you know, there's a question about pro rata rights, then I think you want money from other sources. Because the worst thing in the world is you took a round from a VC and they don't actually exercise pro rata in the following round because now they've signaled to the rest of the market that they're not going to follow on. Um, and, you know, another worst VC is, you know, they've they've basically established, you know, um, preferential exit treatment to the point where your team could work for, you know, N number of years and you'd be screwed out of out of an equal participation in in the exit. So so to me, it's like if you can get a great VC, great board member, good, good brand, good terms, then it's great and they're and they're all in to help you build the company awesome. But I think if if you're not if you're not in that situation, I wouldn't take bad VC money. I just I would go and like to your guys' point, find other sources of capital where you give up less control. Um, because a bad VC can destroy your company. They can force you to exit. Uh, they can take away, you know, money from the employees uh, with the terms. They can, you know, not follow and, and terrible signaling. Um, so to me, great VC, good terms, do it. Um, but if you can't resist the money, go go work and build a syndicate round to retain control. And just one point that I'll add on that because I think it's kind of come up, and for me it was a big learning, is that when you think about VC, you've got to think about right VC and right time. And I think that's come up in, in all of these conversations, right, is that there are certain VCs that the money that they're providing you, it's about growth. And you have to know when you're ready to grow and when you're really ready to step on that gas because I think that's a killer for a lot of startups, right, is saying, hey, we're, we've got the metrics. We think we're ready to grow. We know exactly where we're going to put this capital and we're going to go get $10 million as a Series A. And then you put all that money running really fast in one direction and it's the wrong direction, right? You haven't necessarily validated that yet. I think for us, it, it's a little fuzzy these days, right? Seed, Series A, these things have really blended. Mm -hmm. And what used to be kind of a growth round in some cases now is an investigation round. It's mm -hmm. let's build out the product, let's investigate together. And in other areas where you've got the same name to the round, it's actually about growth. And so really understanding who is this person that's investing in you, what are their expectations, and are you ready for it, I think is, uh, is really important. Awesome. And you guys can't see it, but there's a lot of nodding heads in the room right here agreeing with these comments. So the next question is going to go to Daniela. And she mentioned at the beginning that her investors come from five or six different state, states. And I'm really curious about investors from different geographies. Why did you find them there? Was there something about the geography that gave them a perspective that made them better or faster investors for an early round? And just share a little bit of your experience. So our experience is a little bit unique. Um, we started getting to know the market and through that network of B2B, knowing where treatment centers are located um, and those sometimes those executives or those folks at those treatment centers, uh, new investors or other folks in network. One of my co-founders, uh, who's also in long-term recovery, he had built-in relationships with, uh, you know, high net worth folks. And so for me, um, sleeping on some couches and traveling 24-7 was really important um, because that's where, where the money was and that's where those people were. And so we've raised money now from Southern California, um, Washington, D.C., New York, um, where else, uh, Victoria and Vancouver, B.C., and then a couple other states, Arizona, um, and then also Texas. And so for us, it was more where are our relationships um, that they understand the space? Because again, we're a very niche product and following that. And I think you have to really get in with the mindset that you're going to be gone a lot and you're going to be traveling a lot. And that's the type of sacrifice you have to make. But it's well worth it because then you get the right people on board. And so I have met founders here in the past that feel almost restricted, like their only options are the options here. And and you can't go in with that mentality, um, even if you have to go live somewhere for three to four weeks out of some hotel, like go do that, you know, um, because in the on the other hand, it's going to give you a huge payout. So, yeah, um, 
Thanks a lot, Danielle. I have a, I have a, so when you're searching around for, for folks, I mean, some, some people have a better starting place than others, right? Some people like we're product manager at a company and just interact with a good fund for a number of years and form good relationships. But other people come into this thing, they don't know, they don't, they're just kind of starting from a, almost a blank spot in terms of like, they don't know the investment community. What do you tell those folks? How do you, how do you start the process? So um, there's some platforms that house uh, the startups and uh, what investors have come on board for those startups. So PitchBook Data or Crunchbase, look those up and see where your competitors lie and who those um, investors are. And then do a search either on conspire.com or LinkedIn and see where those investors, who they might know in your network, two, three degrees out. And go to meetups or events where you can meet fellow founders because, at least for me, I'm always happy to help other founders succeed and get connected. Um, and I even, you know, help mentor in terms of pitch and all of that. So I would say do your research in terms of your competitors who already invested in kind of that space and then use those tools to get to those people and start networking. So it's kind of like you network and you also don't sleep because you're going to go to networking events at first. And then once you get the money, you become a hermit because you're actually working on your stuff. That's how I kind of see the shift. <laughs> How did it work for you, Asim? Like, because you were a first-time founder, and I mean, yeah, talk to me about it. You, Techstars was obviously a good lift, right? That was a right. good lift. <clears throat> so one of the things that came from Techstars is this notion of just always having kind of mentors and advisors, people that you're talking with about your business that are outside of the office, right, that have seen startups before, have seen the ecosystem. And that was basically the way that I went and fundraised. It was just a lot of coffees over a lot of time, in-person relationships, right? It was taking one mentor and asking for introductions, who are three other people that you know, who are four other people that you know, who can help me uh, with this idea, validate the concept, validate the customer set. And then you started to ask some of those people for money and say, hey, do you have a $20,000 check, a $50,000 check? Would you be able to participate in this convertible note? And then from there, those you know, kind of investors, those angel investors kind of led into some VC relationships. And those VC relationships led into many other VC relationships. But it's a long road, and it's lots of coffees. And for me, it had to be in person. That was the best way for people to understand the team and the company. And I think it's one of the reasons why we actually do have Seattle area local investors is because, uh, you know, it would be five, six trips to the same location just to get one investor. It's just that many coffees and understanding and getting advice before somebody was really ready, you know, ready to put down a check. Right. So, Michelle, <laughs> what, do you, what do you think? Like, you, you came from a different spot, right? You, just, yeah. you didn't start in the same spot as the first-time founder. But yeah. I, mean, I mean, I am a first-time founder, but didn't, didn't start from zero. Didn't start with no relationships, for sure. Right, yeah. right. So you had the, the benefit of, of having some great relationships before you founded your company. Yeah. So that's helpful. Yeah. Um, so, so just why don't you talk to us about kind of from that point of view, like it was obviously you were focused not on valuation, not on optimizing valuation, which is smart, I think, because a lot of a lot of advice. I know that, um, you know, the Y Combinator founder has written a great essay about, hey, you shouldn't stop. You shouldn't optimize for valuation because you may never get your round done. You might just waste a ton of time. And, and it's like a, such a ridiculous number. Like, it's irrelevant. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. It's like a, the least important thing about what you're doing. Yeah. If, if you're really building a company that creates value. Sure. Look, I mean, I have no Seattle money. So I uh, I think um, it's all it's all Bay money. And I... You know, yes, I started with relationships. So, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't discount. I think it's a really legitimate path to found after being an exec in a startup. You know, I think a lot of VC investing um, is based on trust. It is based on relationships, and you know, they will often take a risk on an idea or a team that isn't perfect. If there's a relationship reason to do that, that's that's a lot of how it works. So, I'm, I definitely think there's no shortcut to the hustle, right? Even if you know people, you know, I had to create a competitive dynamic in my round because that's the difference between, you know, a crowd happy A and a great A. So, you know, I, I don't I don't think there's a shortcut to the hustle. I think certainly, you know, I probably had an easier situation just based on those relationships. But, you know, I, I also think that that's we just all have to work as hard as we can. Um, the one thing I would encourage, I, I do think you should go outside your own geography, get leverage. So, you know, one of the things I observe about the local investment scene, and I have the luxury to observe it, but I think there's a very different mindset in Seattle from local money than there is in the Bay. Um, and I think that that goes to everything from, you know, are they metrics-based investors? My observation is a lot of the local money in Seattle are very much progress-focused, mm -hmm. meaning they look for growth and progress. I think people in the Valley will take a flyer. 
you have a prototype, you have an idea, they just, they, to them, it's a rounding error. You know, they look at a million dollars in their, in their billion dollar fund and it doesn't mean a lot. Um, and so, so I think the concept of risk is really different in the Valley. I think the concept of metrics and progress are really different um, in the Valley. And so I would encourage, you know, um, local investors, if you can get through those relationships that everybody else described, a warm intro to somebody in the Bay, get Bay people in the dynamic. Pitch Bay angels, pitch Bay people, because you'll find if you can get even one of them interested, the entire financial dynamic of your of, and the metrics of your round will change quite dramatically. Um, so I think you know that that would certainly you know be be my advice. And you know, would I take local money? Yeah, I think. What do you trade off? What did I trade off? You know, local investors have a shortcut to a lot of the local talent. So one of the biggest reasons to take to me local money um, is that you get help. You know, they're they're wired into the network, whether it's customers or whether it's tech tech talent or um, and so, you know, I've, I've found the investors to be generous to me. So, I've, you know, my CFO came through a, a Madrona intro, even though Madrona has no money in my company. Um, but but on, on the whole, if I'm weighing like local network versus better terms, I just think I think you owe it to yourself to go outside your geography and to find good money. Um, and, and, you know, I know it's hard, but, you know. The team described all the ways to do it. You just got to hustle. You got to get intros. You got to get to somebody who knows somebody. I totally agree. It's a face-to-face business. You know, people bet on people um, in our business. So I don't know if that's helpful, but I I don't think I'm saying anything that is different from what the rest of the team is saying, but there's no shortcut. There's no shortcut to getting money. Totally. And I completely agree with what Michelle just said. And one of the one of the lessons I learned and piece of advice that I love to share with people fundraising is where to focus your energy. And often I find that a lot of us um, identify a potential investor and spend a lot of energy trying to get that investor to say yes. Whereas I actually think it's smarter to spend your energy finding the investor who's more likely to say yes in the first place. And I think geography is a really important factor to that experience. You know, we have investors here in Seattle who are outstanding, but took months. And then we sometimes go to the Bay or to New York City or in our case to Florida, where there's such a big part of the tourism industry and find investors on one or two conversations, get what we're trying to do and are down to jump on board. Of course, they still do the due diligence and all the stuff that other investors do. Um, but I think where you spend your energy ends up being a huge factor in your outcome and also the amount of effort you have to put into it. Mm-hmm. So I think this this nicely goes into the next uh, couple questions I have. And the first one is, what, learn, what lessons did you learn about fundraising while fundraising? What is the one or two piece of advice that you'd pass on to a first-time uh, entrepreneur who's raising funds? And the second part of that question, I think is just as important but not asked as often, is what did you learn about being a CEO or a founder by fundraising? Do you think you became a better CEO or founder by fundraising? Or do you think that you're about the same or maybe even somehow worse? Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting question. And I think... You know, for us, and maybe, you know, maybe our, our story is a little bit different, but for me, it's always just been kind of a long, ongoing road of, of fundraising. Um, you know, I know, I know kind of we're, we've got Seattle area investors here. We do raise in the Bay. I know investors in the Bay, and we kind of go down there and have conversations with them constantly. I think it's good to get feedback in other geographies. But just the way that we've gone around fundraising, you know, our rounds, we look at it as just kind of always – always be fundraising, right? I'm always having conversations with investors. I think the rounds that we've closed have come from relationships that have been built up over, you know, 12 to eight months. And and I wouldn't say that we were completely actively fundraising for those 12 to eight months, but it's just building those relationships, constantly giving updates and getting in touch with people. So every time I'm down in the Bay Area, you know, there's a handful of investors that I will continue to meet, grab lunch with, update them. Um, but that's kind of the biggest lesson learned for me is it's just an ongoing process. Process. And I think maybe that's a little bit unconventional. I know a lot of people look at it as kind of a time-blocked exercise where you build as big of a list as possible of VCs and then kind of whittle it down like a sales pipeline. Uh, we've tried that. I think you get a lot of feedback from that exercise. But really for us, what's worked is, uh, is going back to the people that you have the strongest relationships with and constantly always be investing in those relationships. And I think that has made me a stronger CEO. I mean, it, it, le- it teaches you that you're always selling, that you're always on, that you always are getting advice and seeking investors so that when you are ready to ask for a check, they know you and, and the process can be easier on you. So lessons learned. Um, First and foremost, the biggest lesson I learned is um, to actually listen to your intuition. So um, if you're getting a sense of feeling that, you know, someone may not have the kind of right intentions or 
the right trajectory for your company, actually listen to that gut feeling and don't be afraid to ask them what other portfolio company or what other companies they've invested in and actually go talk to those founders or do your research. So that was a really important lesson for me that I learned in my past startup. Um, and then that lesson continued to, to serve me um, as I went into this venture. Um, the other piece too is uh, find investors that, you know, if you're like starting out prototyping, just doing a seed round, find investors that are typically investing in A or B because they can kind of become your mentors and you can actually get an insight on how they work and their mindset and, and so forth. What was the second question? Are you a better CEO because mm. of your fundraising efforts? Yes, because for me, uh, there's a lot of difficult conversations that you have uh, with investors. And so it's actually given me additional training, additional coaching on how to do sales that are really key or important or with, uh, you know, other high net worth people. So for me, it was also an exercise in how to just generally be a better business person, how to lead uh, conversations or business meetings um, that I wouldn't have been able to do as well in before had I not had so many hundreds of repetitive pitches and conversations uh, with investors. So in that way, it's made me better. In terms of time spent, it is obviously stressful, but it's just part of the gig because it does take away time from you spending it with your team, from you leading whatever your core competencies are. So for me, um, how we balance each other out in terms of co-founders, uh, you know, I'm heavy on sales. And so I had to take a big step away from that, um, which can also be beneficial, but it can also, you know, definitely take time away from that but I overall I believe it's a it's a good thing and it's made me a better CEO yeah so I, I, just yeah sorry I'm sorry I was going to ask a question about you know you you all are in a unique situation that you've all successfully raised money I'm guessing a lot of the folks that listen to the podcast are um, you know new entrepreneurs that are new to the process I mean, wh what advice do you all have for folks that are new to the new to the process um, you know what what advice would you give to a new entrepreneur that's just embarking on this journey um, you know any any tips words of wisdom um, I'd love to to hear what you think about that yeah, I mean, I think my two big learnings from all my fundraisings are um, the power of the partner matters uh, when you're going after VC and understand partner dynamics. And the second piece is product market fit VC to, to, to uh, entrepreneur. And I'll explain what I mean by those. So within a, within a VC, there are multiple usually partners that need to be weighing in to make a decision. And just like when you sell software, you need to understand your customer's buying dynamics and who does cuts the PO. Um, there are decision dynamics within any firm that you're pitching, whether it's the angel community or the um, VC community. Really understanding how those decisions get made and what is the power of your sponsor to influence the deal um, is really, really critical. So, you know, if you have, if, you're, if your sponsor is like one of the most senior members of the firm, even if there's internal disagreement, you're likely to get your term sheet. Um, in the same situation, if your sponsor is the most junior member of the firm, you're likely not to get your term sheet. And so that was a, that was a real learning for me is understanding that there are people dynamics within the firm itself that you're pitching that will dictate how they make that decision. And you need to understand that. You need to ask that your, your, your sponsor to help you understand that. And you need to make sure you're selling to all of the people required to get to a yes within that firm. Um, that was a big learning to me and I use it all the time. The second thing, and Gilad alluded to this, is find people who are likely to be aligned to what you do. And what I mean by that is Every investment firm has, or every VC has its own kind of tells of how it thinks about investing. Um, some, some investment firms are very founder focused. Some investment firms are very metrics focused. Some investment firms are really focused on a vertical or they have a thesis around, you know, where they invest. And I, I would, my first group of investors that I would pitch in any round is always the people I think have the most fit to where I am and what I'm doing. So if I'm early, I'm not going to pitch metrics-based firms. I'm going to pitch founder-based firms. And I'm going to tweak my story to be all about why we're the inevitable founders for that idea. And I'm going to find people who have a thesis about our space, if possible, right, and a passion for that investing. And so I think, like, that you can waste a lot of time pitching people who have no reason to say yes to you. And I think it's far more effective, and, you know, the team has kind of alluded to that, to really be focused on the subset of people most likely to say yes to you, right? Those are those are the most effective intros, meetings, discussions you can possibly have. So I don't know if that's helpful to all the founders out there, but I think being really deliberate 
Like, I, th I feel like we often approach this as if it's some emotional game that we're going to have a date and someone's going to say yes. I um, mean, the reality is it's really unlikely if you approach your fundraising that way that you're going to get money. The, if you're really deliberate and you think about who are the people I want to target, how do I get intros to them? Who do I know that can make that introduction to me? What CEO or founder can help me? Um, who's most likely to give me money? I think you're going to be much, much more likely to uh, to be successful. And I think, you know, people, people just read the books, read Brad Feld's book, talk to their founders, but be really deliberate because otherwise you can waste a ton of time. So I don't know. Totally. I want to echo one thing Michelle said that I think is so important and a mistake that I made. We were talking to a VC firm pretty seriously over a number of months, um, all the way to a partnership meeting. And in that meeting, I realized that I was talking to the wrong partner. Me too. Um, mm -hmm. Yep. And I realized the partner I was talking to didn't actually have the pull to make this deal happen, especially in the travel space that we're in. And not only was that a huge emotional blow, but it was a huge amount of time that we spent. Um, and we really thought this fund was going to lead our round. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the most important things that's been said today is, is that piece of advice from Michelle. The second thing I would say is any smart investor, especially a VC, is going to be very focused on TAM, on your total addressable market. And I think that that is a place where I and other first-time entrepreneurs and first-time fundraisers often find pitfalls mm -hmm. in really understanding your total addressable market because a good VC is going to try to poke holes in it. Mm -hmm. And they're going to try to figure out if it's really your market and who else is competing with there. Um, so I would spend as much time as you need to really understand that TAM and to make sure you've got that well figured out. Interesting. How did you do that, Asim? Did you, did you experience <laughs> that? I mean, total addressable market, how did you figure it out? It's not an easy thing, right? It, it, it sounds easy, but... And, 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 you know, I mean, I think, I think it's always been a challenge for us and it continues, continues to be one, right? I mean, for us, I think I always grapple with that. You know, you hear the story, hey, if it just feels big enough, right, you're good. You don't really have to justify it as much because, hey, markets grow, they evolve over time. Uh, but when you go and talk to investors, especially Series A investors and the guys that are starting to look at growth and, and really the question that they ask every single time you walk in the room is, will this be a billion dollar company, right? Which is, it's a market question, right? It's just how big can this thing be? Um, you've got to come ready with that answer. So I think we're still working on it, right? What are the proof points? How do we know this market's going to actually evolve? I mean, I think we see in our numbers, right, in our sales process, how many people are coming into the pipeline. Uh, but really looking at from a kind of top-down analysis, you can make some bets, and you got to feel confident about it when you go in with VCs to kind of tell that story. Can I add to this? Yeah, sorry, please. sorry yeah, I don't want to interrupt. Uh, so, Tam, think, so think about your, the VC, right, or the investor. What are they trying to figure out? They're trying to figure out how much money they can make. Why is TAM such a core thing is, is that they make all their money from breakout success. So they lose 90% of their money and they make 20x, 50x returns on the breakouts. And the breakouts are breakouts because the market ends up being massive. So the central question, to me, a VC is trying to answer two questions. How big is the opportunity for them to get a breakout success? And are you the right team, person, company to actually be the market leader in that space? So I totally agree with Gilad. If you get nothing else right or wrong, your TAM slides have to be awesome. Um, and if you don't know how to do that, this is, a, this is like a very well understood thing. Find product people who can help you build this market assessment. So I've been doing this for 20 years. There are three ways to build a TAM. Bottoms up, tops down, and adjacencies. And I have all three, and I've used them very effectively. Um, and I you know, smash my VCs with them in the face in every fundraising uh, that I do. Um, bottoms up is number of people you're targeting times how much they'll pay you and why that would be big. Bottoms, uh, uh, so that, that's bottoms up. Tops down is take some big number and figure out how you're a percentage of that spend, and that's tops down. And adjacencies are how are you going to cannibalize existing markets people can size and how much of that money is going to move into your space. And a great pitch, everyone knows it's assumptive. So a great pitch, you have three slides, and they all come to the roughly the same number. And what you're really saying is my TAM is somewhere between, you know, my bottoms up is five and my tops down is seven and my, you know, you know, adjacencies are like, you know, 6.2. And so I don't know, but I really know it's somewhere between five and eight. And if my market's five and eight billion dollars, I have a public company. And that's the math they're trying to do. So I could not agree with Gilad more. I kind of assume that everyone knows how to do that. But if you don't know how to do it, get help. That's a great go network with other founders. And you need to have that tight because your level of confidence in, in, in delivering that is going to be a significant part of them being like, yeah, this is going to be huge. So I'm so glad you you brought that up. Sorry. I know Let me just ask a, a quick follow up on that because I think it's an important subject. So I think a lot of times we hear this kind of concept like focus on a niche market, right? Focus on a market where you can win and you can show that fire right now. But then obviously the end game is this huge, huge market. So how do you think about telling that storyline 
over time, right? That you're here today, but your product roadmap might go in these other places. How do you kind of think about that when sizing the market where you are today versus where you're going? Yeah, I mean, I, I so one, I think that's also about type of investor. Mm-hmm. So I feel like there are investors who are very focused on small plays because they want progress and they're nervous about big plays. And there's investors who want big markets, know who you're pitching. Um, I didn't really pitch anybody who wanted small plays because, like, I had a prototype and no customers and 300 interviews. So, like, those people weren't going to give me any money. Um, but I, I like to talk about uh, markets and product like a telescope, which is, hey, you know, we have an 18-month plan. So in my company, we're focused on sales and marketing, customer engagement. That's what we do today. Um, and we think that market is somewhere between a 6 and $10 million market. But there's no reason my company couldn't be an employee engagement hub. There's no reason it couldn't be an order orchestration platform. So when I talk about, you know, the long-term at UserMind over the next 10 years, I can size adjacencies that are, you know, another $4 billion, another $4 billion. Um, and, and to be honest, I actually think that says more about the quality of the investor than it says about your ability to tell that story. Um, so I, I think, you know, I always tell everybody, like, I think I have a $20 billion market opportunity. I'm very focused on six of it right now. Um, and frankly, I'm really focused on the next quarter. Um, so if an investor kind of said that to me, and it was, I, I think I would ding them as just quality of investor, I'd be like, pardon me, but like, you don't know what you're talking about. So um so I, I kind of think about it as telescoping, and I definitely articulate my 10 or 15-year end game. Um, but, you know, I, I definitely don't really focus on these kind of little interim app steps. The other thing I, I use and is used really effectively for me, if you feel like there's a lot of adjacencies, is I basically call it strategic vectors. And I don't do it in my business now, but I have in the past. A strategic vector slide just says, hey, I have a really big market now, or I have a $500 million market now. Here's what's cool about my company is there's three directions I can go in, each of which are $2 billion. And I don't know yet which one I'm going to go in, but because I don't know the answers. But like, I have three vectors, each of which are $2 billion. So guess what you can guess? I have you know two to three billion dollars in market runway, and I don't have to know today. And that's that's probably the tactic I would use, um, is I would use vectors to say you know here's what I know and here's how big that market is. But there's multiple adjacencies, and I don't know yet. But in 18 months, I'll know which one I'm pivoting into. But I, I think that's essential. Like I, I couldn't go out. I'm so glad you raised that. Did you do you have one? Um, so I echo what everybody's been saying and definitely echo Michelle saying that you have to feel out the investor because some investors are really sick of hearing uh, pitches where everyone's saying we're going to be you know, a $10 billion company and we're going to be the next unicorn. So you actually psychologically want to lead them to that conclusion. So maybe on your slide, don't put that big number on there, but show, hey, these are the different niche, uh, you know, like the niche TAMs within my market that I'm going to go after. And then they're going to sort of add them up on their own. And they're going to be like, oh, my God, you are you you do have the potential to be a unicorn, Um, especially this is about six months ago when a bunch of things were happening in the press and media with unicorns. I sensed for some of the investors that we went into that they had to sort of arrive at that conclusion by the data you were presenting, because if you walked in there presenting that outright first without really giving proper explanation and data on it, they were going to actually, you know, uh, dismiss you. Um, so, but all, you know, knowing your stuff to a T is kind of obvious and important. Uh, what I would say to founders that are listening that this is their first journey or haven't really forayed into fundraising yet, um, Fred Letty, one of our investors that is incredible and incredibly successful business person, he told me, get really comfortable feeling uncomfortable the next 18 months. And if you're feeling that, that means you're growing. That means you're moving forward. And I'm just going to be completely transparent. There are really hard days. So listening to all of us here who have been successful in fundraising, I can at least speak for myself that there are some very dark nights ahead. But just know that all of us are experiencing that doesn't mean you're not going to succeed and does not mean you're not going to make it through. So. Awesome. And I think we're about to run out of time here. So I'll ask just one last question that I think is interesting from um all the CEOs here in the room. And that is, will you raise again for your company? And if so, what type of investors are you going to be looking for? And what type of investment terms, not necessarily exact valuation, but are there specific terms you would not accept or specific terms that you really want to have as a part of your investment? Um, and I'll answer first and to say for you, Trip, one of the things we're seriously considering is a strategic investment, something that hasn't been talked about um, in the podcast today. Um, you know, we're in an industry where there are giant players that are very good with technology. 
um, and are very active in the investment space. And we think that a strategic investment for a company like Utrip might be interesting as as long as it comes with some sort of something else, whether it's access to a big market of travelers, whether it's access to inventory or content we otherwise don't have access to, um, or something like that. But that is certainly one thing we'll consider um, for our next round on top of VCs and other types of investments as well. Yeah, no, I totally echo that. So I'm going to be raising another round in the next few months, probably by the end of the year, I've got to raise our Series C. Um, and this is the first round I'm doing that we will have multiple investors. So I probably will this round take, I, I mean, I did it in my A, but it wasn't intentional. I will look for a lead and a follow. Um, you know, my team will do their pro rata. Um, we're actually switching now. Our, my For the first time, I'm pitching a blend of venture and growth investors. So that's going to be interesting. I'm sure I'll learn some things about the growth investors that I'm targeting. Um, and I am also targeting strategics. So, you know, in our business, we think of strategics as being one of two things, a vendor who can bless you and de-risk you to enterprises. Um, and in my business, that's something like Salesforce, or it could be, you know, Sapphire, SAP, um, uh, or it could be, you know, some kind of leader in the customer experience space, um, you know, that that could, could provide additional value to us. So we're definitely also evaluating strategics as a follow um, in the round that we're going to do. Um, and, and maybe one one thing for us is, you know, we have Andreessen. So I always tell people, like, optimize a, for a mix of brand and non-brand investors. You know, because we have Andreessen already, who's, you know, I think is what I call an A investor. They're an A brand. They'll attract a lot of great employees. They attract great money. You know, at this point now, we don't optimize for brand in our rounds. So, you know, we take better board member, better terms. Um, and that's the most important thing to me is, you know, how do I get really good money? But really, how do I add an amazing board member who's going to take, I have a very functional board, so I want to make sure I don't do any harm to that. Um, and, and that, frankly, is more important to me than brand at this point. Yeah, so um, I also echo what people have said here. We're actually uh, right now uh, through the process of zeroing in out of three strategics of who we're going to go with. And for us, a strategic is a large uh, treatment center brand or some sort of a hospital system. Um, so I think those can be very useful because like Michelle was saying, it can really uh, bless you. Um, I would say if you're the audience, you know, if you're a, a first time founder or you're just kind of getting into the space, definitely at that stage of evaluating what terms are good or bad um, and weighing the pros and cons, go talk to peers and go get some mentors um, because it can be really different in different situations of in terms of what you're sacrificing and what you're looking at. Um, so for us, you know, uh, some of the same fo things that the folks here on the podcast have already mentioned are really important. I don't have, uh, you know, a ton of new stuff to add, but I would just say go talk to peers and mentors um, because ultimately they'll they'll be able to get you to zero in on what's important for you. So, yeah. So, so Cito, we'll we'll most likely do another venture round, uh, but I think the way that I look at it is is do it in a way where you don't need it. Uh, focus on the business right now. We're definitely a revenue-focused business, and my goal is to kind of get us to a place where uh, the venture money that we take next is really just to go faster. It's not because we need to extend our runway, that we basically are self-sufficient on our own and we can have optionality. And so that's the way I look at terms as well. Um, you know, you can't really... Uh, be very picky about terms until you've built yourself a competitive position. Uh, and that's really where we'd want to be in the in the next round is to say, okay, we are self-sufficient on our own. We need capital to go faster. Uh, and I'm in a place now where I feel like I've got some competition on that deal. That's when we're going to want to raise next. Yeah, and I'll add one other thing. So for us, it's very similar. Um, our products can go lateral into other population sectors like eating disorders, um, gambling addiction, and a couple other sectors. And so for us, uh, we always go into it that, you know, we're going to work as hard as possible and then evaluate if we need to raise another round, whether, you know, things went a little bit slower than we thought, or the alternative is, are we getting pushed and excited about going into lateral markets at a rapid rate? That's when we'll make that decision. Um, and, you know, if some investors, you know, they sort of ask you, what is your path? Like, what's your plan for subsequent rounds? And sometimes that makes me think that that investor might not be as experienced to have that expectation early on for you to know. Um, but, you know, that's just my personal opinion. So, so for us, we will likely raise another round, and we hope that it's to go into lateral markets or because we need an extra jump start um, because some unknowns may have come into into play. So you just never know. So as far as uh, mentoring, are all of you willing to take the occasional random phone call from from founders who are who are who are looking? 
Always, especially first-time founders. I'll say as a first-time CEO, there is nothing more exciting and challenging than going into the space. So I enjoy, and personally, I get a lot of, uh, you know, personal pleasure of talking to other entrepreneurs at the very beginning. You know, one of the things I think all of our companies have in common is we're in some sort of execution mode. We have to prove that we can scale at a certain rate, that we can get the revenue numbers that we hit or the user numbers that we're supposed to hit. Um, and when you first start, you know, the world's your oyster. You can dream big. And I really love that phase. So I always enjoy talking to first-time entrepreneurs. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't be here without mentors. Uh, they've given me so much. And, you know, it's it's like uh, it's like therapy, right? You go in there and you have somebody else to talk to and, and get through your problems. So 100%, I always want to give back as much as possible just because mentors have been such an important part of my career as an entrepreneur. Yeah, and I also love mentoring folks. And I think it's important to get, um, yeah, mentees, because even with those conversations, sometimes you get reminded of things that because you've been in the weeds with your own company, and you're like, wait, I just share this with my mentee, like, that's a good reminder for me. Um, and then get a, a, a peer mentor, because they're going through the same journey at the same time as you. And then, of course, get mentors that have more experience from you. There's a difference between getting mentors that are founders that are ahead of you, and then having an actual business slash wellness slash fitness coach. And I think both are important for uh, different reasons when it comes to growth. Um, and yeah, I absolutely love uh, mentoring folks. And my time sort of fluctuates depending where we're at, but I'll always take a call. Um, and I love mentoring people. So yeah, I mean, I don't think any founder gets to where they're at. I, I, I think we're not we're not an abnormal group of founders. Pretty much every founder I've ever met, if you if you get an intro and said, "Hey, can I get a coffee to talk about some topic?" I, I really have never met a founder who is not generous because we've all been through needing help on a hundred topics from other people. So, I think you know, I, I'm certainly willing to take the time, and I know I I get a lot out of it. But I, I I if I was making one final point, I think the idea of like it it is founding is hard. You know, if you read Ben Horowitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, he calls it the struggle. Um, it's certainly the hardest thing I've ever done. Uh, managing my own emotion and my own psychology is actually the hardest thing. It really has nothing to do with the facts of being a founder or the facts of your business. Um, and so I think, like, the most important thing is, you know, hustle, don't give up, work your ass off, don't take no. I mean, all of us fundraising, I, I, I agree. Like, it sounds like we all raised and we're all successful and ahead of the people who are listening who haven't. But every one of us, no matter where we started, got many more no's than yeses in the process. And the no's are just not as visible. And they're not visible in any of the articles that are written, which is, I think, why Gilad wanted to have this discussion. Um, but there's no founder out there, no matter how glamorous the story, who doesn't have, you know, many more customer no's than yeses, many more VC no's than yeses, many more employee no's than yeses, you know, many more failures than successes. And the art of persisting in the face of all of those failures, um, I think, is the key thing about being a founder. So to me, that's like the single most important thing to take away. It doesn't matter what geography, it doesn't matter what investor. Um, none of us got here without pushing through all of those nose failures problems. Um, and so like when, when you're having the hard day, just keep at it. Get up, go to sleep, get up, and the next day, start again. Um, so, and you'll, you'll forge your own path and be on a podcast like this. <laughs> wow. That's a, that's actually a wonderful note to end on actually. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Elon, Elon, do you have any further final thoughts here? No, just a thank you to, to you guys for hosting us and a thank you to my friends here for joining us. And I think that, you know, like I said at the beginning, we all read a lot of articles about those unicorns from the Valley, but most startups out there are not in the Valley, are not unicorns. Um, and I'm really happy we could share some of our stories with all the listeners. Thank you, everybody. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, everyone else, for listening. We'll see you all next week.